Hello and welcome to the Decrypting Crypto Podcast. It's January 18th, 2024, and this is our first episode of, of the new year. Slightly belated as we, we took a little bit of time out to relax and eagerly anticipate the ETF news. But as always, you know, I'm Matthew House Barbie and I'm here with Austin Knight. Austin, how was your, how was your break? You had a good time? Oh, it was great, Matt. Uh, very relaxing. You know, personally, I'm really looking forward to the SEC prosecuting itself for market manipulation thanks to its <laughs> negligence of not even having two-factor authentication activated on their Twitter account. Uh, hey, it's a great start to another chaotic year. <laughs> it was honestly, it was the most bizarre. As you know, I was taking a little time out on vacation, went to St. Lucia, and the day before I was going to be uh, flying back, well, I flew back on the 10th, right? So the ETF day. So just as I was like getting nice. the plane, the whole like absolute insanity of like the uh, the SEC's Twitter account and, you know, them confirming the ETF, then getting rid of like the PDF and the kind of bizarre commentary from Gensler that was just like, hey, we're approving this, but also crypto is a big scam was how I would like TLDR it, which I, it was just a very strange, bizarre situation for that to be the case. Um, but, you know, we're going to be digging into the ETFs so far and have a little look at how they're performing and dig a little deeper into it, right? I know lots of people were expecting this giant kind of meteoric rise in Bitcoin price on basically by now, and it hasn't, I think we can dig into the exact details why. And we're going to talk a little bit as well around some of the kind of bizarre requirements that the IRS put in place around crypto trading, which they've been jumping back and forth on, which I know you're going to dig in a little bit deeper onto Austin. But why don't we kick things off and dive dive straight into ETF mania? and uh, see where we're at. Okay, so unless you've been living under a, a rock, you will know that the first ever cohort of Bitcoin spot ETFs were approved and they went live last week. They debuted on uh, the markets on Thursday the 11th. And have had four full days of trading uh, because, as we know, unlike crypto, which is 24-7, we only trade within the market. Opening and closing bell. Monday of this week was a public holiday in the U.S., so or I believe a federal holiday in the U.S., so the markets were closed. So we've had the 11th, 12th, 16th, and 17th. And wow, it's been pretty, pretty eventful to to say the least. And I think the most obvious question on many people's lips are, you know, why, why number no go up? Uh, that's, that's the first question that I think was uh, put out on, on crypto Twitter. And I think many non-crypto natives wondering, why have we not seen a big surge in Bitcoin? considering we've had huge volume, unprecedented amounts of volume trading on these ETFs. So let's break this down a little bit. 
So the first spot ETFs, as I mentioned, they began trading at market open on Thursday. And Bitcoin at that time was around 46.5, 47K. One hour in, it looked like we were about to go onto a rocket ship. I'd put the down payment on the Lambo. Uh, we'd we'd, we'd, <laughs> went, <laughs> we'd went on to the up to forty eight point five k. We were seeing the first hour of data slowly trickling through. Uh, there's there's a big lag on getting a lot of the true flow data in, which I'll explain in a second. But that marked a two year high for BTC price. It was great. Uh, that said, things went around a little bit. And by close of market on Friday, second day, it had dropped to 42.5K. So pretty significant clawback um, in, in price. And it's been pretty stable around that, that level since. Um, and even looking at where we're at today, we're, we're hovering in and around that that price still. And this is uh, Thursday that, that we're recording on, Thursday the 18th. Why has it dropped down in price? Well, the simple answer is our favorite entity, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust run by the wonderful folks at Grayscale owned by Digital Currency Group. Um, they have single-handedly been dragging down the ETF flows. And there's a pretty rational explanation for this that is actually pretty obvious when you dig into it. But let's let's have a little look uh, through some of this. So I think the most important way that we can evaluate the performance of the ETFs, and <clears throat> I'm, I'm sure by now you've been flooded with the you know explainers on what an ETF is, but just at a really high level from the, the viewpoint of Bitcoin, right? This is uh, cash redemption only. And the way this works is you have the ETF issuer. So we have several different ETFs, Fidelity, Grayscale, Vanek, Bitwise. We have BlackRock, Franklin Templeton, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Each of these sell um, you can buy shares through like your your brokerage and um, you'll gain exposure directly to Bitcoin, but you'll you'll often buy shares that may be priced slightly differently, right? Like you one share in the grayscale Bitcoin uh, trust might be like 19 bucks for, for, for example, right I haven't actually looked at the share price. Um, <clears throat> so you're not just like, buying one BTC per share, just to call that out, right? Just like in all ETFs, it's usually the case. Now, when the, uh, by the end of and close of market, the way that you want to look at this is, okay, from the beginning of market open to the end of market, what is the uh, total AUM, the assets under management that the ETF has accrued? And that's typically viewed by, you know, the number of people buying, the number of people selling. And if there is more people buying shares than selling, then your assets under management are going to grow. As a result, as you sell more shares in the ETF, you need to buy Bitcoin uh, through a brokerage like a Coinbase, a Kraken, a Binance, whatever, and will be stored with your custodian of choice. Nearly all of the ETF providers have 
Coinbase managing their custody, apart from Fidelity, and I think a couple of others. Fidelity actually self-custody themselves. So that's how the impact uh, on BTC kind of price and the, the market dynamics happen there. If there is negative flows, right, you've had more sales than uh, you have buys, you will have to sell some of those assets on the market as well, or via OTC or otherwise. So the, what we're looking at here is we're looking at the flow of capital. And um, th this is the most important piece of <clears throat> how we want to look at this. Um, and ideally, what we want to see is that we are having positive inflows. We're having more buyers than sellers. So then, you know, the ETF issuers will have to rebalance their Bitcoin holdings to match the, um, the amount of shares that they've sold in their ETFs. So let's have a little look at how this played out on day one. Because I think this is like a very interesting part. <clears throat> day one, we, we had some pretty, pretty monumental... Um, kind of volumes of, of trading overall. And I think <clears throat> one of the things to really understand here is you have flow and you have volume. Flow is typically what you're going to be looking at as like, okay, there is the net amount of shares that have been uh, traded. So if you have positive flow, you know, there was more buyers than sellers. If you have negative flow, then there's more sellers than buyers. Volume is the combined, right? Let's say we have <clears throat> 10 buyers and one seller. The volume would be 11 shares have traded. The flow would be nine, right? Because we've had 10 buyers and only one seller. 10 minus one is nine, of course. So just to, to, to grasp that, because I know a lot of people have been like, whoa, we've had all this volume, like, 10 billion in volume. Uh, why are we not seeing 10 billion in Bitcoin uh, purchases? It's not the way this works. So day one, what we saw was that every single ETF issuer <clears throat> had positive flow, uh, inflows into the ETF with the, the day one winner actually being Bitwise, which was kind of surprising for a lot of, a lot of people at 238.8 million uh, in uh, positive inflow with Fidelity uh, coming second and BlackRock uh, third from a positive flow, not total overall volume. Then day two, we saw <clears throat> uh, BlackRock start to really grow and they did not far off 400 million in positive flow in the second day and have continued to really kind of grow that, that amount. They are the the runaway winner here overall. And by the end of day four, if we have a look at like <clears throat> the total assets um, that, that they have accrued, you've got BlackRock have now passed $1 billion worth in AUM, Fidelity up second with 874, Bitwise with 354. So total assets uh, kind of that the, they're holding from starting from zero has been pretty pretty significant. And overall, we've had, if we look at the four days of, um, of trading combined, the net inflow, so we've had positive inflow, is $1.29 billion of inflows. That is <clears throat> absolutely enormous um, in, in terms of this. Now, there's one 
there's one ETF that I haven't mentioned in amongst all of this, in amongst all these positive infos, and that's Grayscale. Grayscale is the only ETF that has seen outflows uh, on every single day and in huge size. In total, over the four days, we've seen outflows of $1.62 billion. There's a few reasons for this, which we'll go into. But <clears throat> all of the selling pressure is coming from Grayscale. I also, when I was talking about the total assets under management, didn't mention Grayscale as well. Because you'll note that I said BlackRock has just over a billion dollars of, of assets under management and their Bitcoin trust. Grayscale has 24.7 billion, right? Why is that the case? Well, they didn't start from zero. As, <clears throat> as you'll kind of, uh, as you'll, you'll recall, unlike the rest of the spot ETFs, Grayscale actually converted their previous investment trust into a spot ETF. This meant that they actually had around 30 billion in assets under management, the rest starting from zero, right? Uh, when the ETFs went live. So if you're a keen listener of the podcast, you'll remember one of our episodes back in July of last year. And we discussed that Grayscale's GBTC shares, they were actually trading at a 40% discount to NAV, that's net asset values, mm -hmm. which translates into they were trading at a 40% discount to the actual price of Bitcoin. Um, so there was a huge potential arbitrage opportunity um, <clears throat> that you could take on if the spot ETFs were approved and that Grayscale was converted into a spot ETF, which we now know did happen, but many people did not believe that was going to happen. So <clears throat> once the ETF launched, that discount completely closed, meaning that not only did you see an appreciation in the price of Bitcoin, which, as many of us know, was one of the top performing assets of all asset classes across all of 2023. But if you bought during a discount to NAV period, which basically was if you bought in the past two years, you also had an additional big upside on top of that. Uh, so I guess fortune favors the brave, right? So <clears throat> that we talked at the time being a potential huge uh, winning trade, if that was the case. Um, but you just had to take on the risk. So I, I take my hat off to anyone who did it. I wasn't brave enough to do that. Um, now, if you combine that with the fact that GBTC has by far and away the largest fees of all the ETF issuers, 1.5% in annual fees versus anywhere between 19 and 40 bips, right? So a huge, huge difference, right? If you, if you, if you look at um, Fidelity and BlackRock, the two high, highest assets under management, it's 25 bips. It's like a huge multiple to just be listed with Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. And, you know, who would I rather uh, trust, Grayscale? Or fidelity. I, I'm pretty sure the answer is pretty clear on that one, right? So, yeah. not only are you going to go realize some nice profit, but more importantly, you can very easily sell those GBTC shares and just rotate it straight into a lower fee ETF, just to mean if you wanted to maintain your exposure. So, I think we're seeing a little bit of that. There's some rotation. There's someone just 
some people that are just getting out of this thing they've been stuck in for a long time. Um, and <clears throat> I think we're going to see the selling pressure on GBTC to continue for a little while, right? Long term, though, you know, once we see this get flushed out, the rest of the ETFs, there are very strong flows overall. And remember, we're less than 100 days away from the Bitcoin halving. So lots to be really positive about. And when we just kind of take a little bit of a step back, what we've seen here is if we just park grayscale for, for now, the clear winners here so far in terms of like, you know, amassing huge inflows into their ETF and growing their assets under management, especially since we're only four days in, BlackRock and Fidelity. Um, I think it's evident there is clear demand for the Bitcoin ETF. The, it, after just three days, there was there was uh, over a hundred uh, over eight hundred million in net inflows, and we've passed a billion now. And on those three days, there was over ten billion dollars <throat> in total volume traded. And and here's some perspective. This was a really really great tweet from um, uh, Eric Balconas, uh, which is an ETF analyst at Bloomberg, which I will call out for saying have done some fantastic coverage of the uh, of crypto as a whole over the past few months. He said that there were 500 ETFs that were launched in 2023. These are not Bitcoin ETFs, right? But just 500 overall that were launched in 2023. As of the end of day three of trading of the Bitcoin ETF, they did a combined 450 million in volume. The best one did 45 million. And many of these have had months to get going. If we look at IBIT, which is the BlackRock uh, ETF, that alone has seen more activity than the entire of the 2023 class of uh, ETFs that have launched. And that's only after three days. This is unbelievable. Um, yeah. So just want to give some perspective there. I think there is a lot of like, uh, concern around like the ETF, but as 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 has been said, you know, this is long term capital flowing into into Bitcoin, and um, you know I think maybe maybe Grayscale took some of the shine off of this, but I think we should, despite the price of Bitcoin not just going uh, straight to the moon, um, be very positive about the overall state of how this has played out. Yeah, no doubt about it. Matt, how much do you think the ETFs were priced in prior to uh, the approval uh, versus how much of a role Grayscale is, is playing in this? I think that, um, I think it's much more Grayscale. I, <clears throat> I think there's been an element of like market irrationality as well, which we always see in a volatile mm -hmm. asset like crypto. And I think also traders are getting used to the new activity that's happening, right? Like at the close of market, we're starting to see the rebalancing and like big buys that are coming in and big sells that are coming in at various points. And that's not, we've not really had that before. Markets have traded <clears throat> in very different ways in, in, in Bitcoin to what we're seeing now. And I think a lot of traders are getting used to this. And I think there was this shock that happened when we saw the negative flows coming in before people could kind of comprehend a lot of what was happening. We saw that big spike. We haven't just seen a consistent bleed. We're just kind of trading sideways a bit. I think people are trying to figure out where, where does this go? 
I don't necessarily, I think people were pricing in a bit of the ETF, but <clears throat> honestly, I think that if GBTC wasn't in this, it would be, we would be on an absolute tear right now. But I think long-term, and I'm really excited to see what happens around the time of the halving, I think that's going to be a really exciting time. I remain still very bullish. I did say, you know, I got one of my predictions, right, of a, a Jan 10th ETF uh, launch, which I'm happy about. I did also say by the end of Jan that Bitcoin will, will hit 55K. I still think that's a very strong possibility. Um, and it would not surprise me if in February we see it drop off for a while and we see kind of a bit of a, a correction down before uh, the yeah. rally kicks back off up to up to the um, the halving. But we'll see how it plays out. It's just, you know, there's a lot of new dynamics at play, but I don't buy the idea that this is like, you know, this is just a sell the news event and that's it. This is, there's real capital mm. inflows coming into crypto and i think we're just uh i think everyone's playing it a little bit safe until kind of we see how this all shakes out over the next few weeks we've only had a few days right of of, of this data coming in yeah makes sense well uh what a trade if you were brave enough <laughs> to buy oh, yeah. into grayscale <laughs> oh man gbtc uh that's a good, it's such a, a you know that that is a really great trade to do. You got to be really nice and risk on. I think one of the other ones that I tweeted about uh, a couple months back was that is is in this category, and you know we'll see if it pays off. That I I I don't have the stomach for was buying up um, FTX bankruptcy notes on yeah. what was it like fifty five cents on the dollar. Um, you know, if I feel like that's going to be another one of those that maybe in like a year's time, we look back and go, damn, what a trade if you did that. Right. So maybe, <laughs> maybe someday we'll take our own advice, but who knows? Uh, <laughs> all right, let's jump into our next story of the day. The IRS ended up creating a requirement that you would need to report crypto trades over $10,000 or face jail time. And then they said they won't enforce the rule for now. So, hey, Helpful. ensue panic and then <laughs> retreat. <laughs> All right. So uh, what, what is this uh, requirement that, that we're talking about here? Um, so basically, during the first week of the year, part of the Biden infrastructure plan started getting circulated around because there was a provision in it that stated that beginning on January 1st of 2024, key details pertaining to certain crypto payments over $10,000, including the name, address, and social security number of the payer would need to be reported to the IRS under penalty of felony criminal charges. I'm just going to restate that in layman terms. Basically, what this is saying, this is something that was like already in the infrastructure plan since 2021. Uh, but it just didn't go into effect, this particular provision, until the first of this year. It was saying that if you receive $10,000 or more in crypto, you now have an obligation to report the transaction, including the names, addresses, social security numbers, etc., of the person paying you that 10 k to the IRS within 15 days under threat of a felony charge. So like if we do a transaction 
and Matt pays me 10K, I'm going to need to ask him for his social security number <laughs> somehow. Like, what is, which, like, Matt, I don't even think you have one of those. <laughs> yeah, like, right? Like, what is actually going on here? Like, what, what's the benefit of this? Like, why are we passing KYC obligations on, basically, to, to individuals for, for 10K or more? Like, is, is it not enough that we're declaring this in tax returns? Like, what? It, it just mm-hmm. this one is a truly baffling one for me. I I, I cannot get my head around it, and I'm really excited yeah. to see the number of transactions posted for nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine US dollars uh, that 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 go through <laughs> uh, in in many well, many batches. Well, you know, uh, I do uh, recall so, yeah. by. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, of course. Yes, just one after another. Nine, 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 nine. I do recall. I, I think Biden hired something like sixty-seven thousand new IRS agents, which is just incredible. And I guess they gotta have something. <laughs> Sounds to do, about right. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Now there is one one sort of I guess uh, you know point that should be mentioned here, which is that apparently there is some precedent here in UX tax law, which is that for certain businesses, if they receive a cash transaction uh, for goods or services rendered in excess of $10,000, they would need to report that under some pre-existing IRS uh, laws, right? So the thought is that maybe this is somewhat related to that, like an attempt at a continuation of an old existing cash based rule um, if only we and, and had a it publicly crypto. available to view ledger of account that <laughs> could track a lot of this stuff and then you wouldn't need this 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 silly archaic rule i guess <laughs> yeah i know it would be really nice if somebody would invent that yeah and then could get day. the bureaucrats to actually understand it and freaking look at it, <laughs> yeah, it but great. hey um now, what, 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 how, how does this actually work uh, in practice? So the statute mandates that any person who receives at least $10,000 worth of crypto in the course of trade or business, that's an interesting part of this, must report identifying information about who paid them that money. So what this means is that who the law might affect in crypto, it all comes down to what constitutes a financial transaction made in trade or business which is a term of art in tax law, which, while informed by decades of legal precedent, actually has no literal definition. So basically, this, this term of trade or business, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't have a clear legal definition. Like I said, it's kind of going off of this old cash-based rule for businesses receiving cash in excess of $10,000. And it's all based off of legal precedent. It's not something that's really clearly defined. So uh, what do we need to do? We need to start asking lawyers about it, basically. Uh, there is this uh, this lawyer, Miller Whitehouse Levine. It's, he's also the CEO of DeFi Education Fund. He said, quote, I think it's quite clear that it applies to pretty much any transaction in which someone is, in exchange for a good or service, receiving over $10,000 worth of crypto assets. So that sounds pretty broad to me, Matt. Very um, broad. <laughs> so, yeah, so let's start applying this to some, some real-world wor- cases. What if you're an artist selling NFTs worth greater than $10,000? Well, it turns out there are many artists in that 
bucket. Uh, Claire Silver is one example of an NFT artist who tweeted out, okay, I pay my taxes. It hurts and it's a lot, but I do it. This won't let me. We don't know names, let alone social security numbers for those who buy our work. 15 days or felony for selling my art? Am I seriously going to have to leave the USA for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Can we just talk about, about like, actually gathering social security numbers? Right, like... Mm -hmm. How do you even... Like, the the practicality of of this, you know, I've... I, I've lived in the U.S. and uh, so can kind of understand how much of a closely guarded secret your social security number mm-hmm. is for, for you as an individual. We, we don't have this concept in many other countries. And like a lot of it, you just you have like a taxpayer number. But, you know, it's, it's not you're not getting identity theft when someone knows that it's largely yeah. publicly available to be you. Social security number, like if it was always like. I think about it like your your credit card like pin number in the EU. That's like what it feels like mm-hmm. for people in the US. What you're going to just like type this into a website and give it to some anon NFT artist? Like what? And then that mm-hmm. person is going to be responsible for storing and processing your personally identifiable information. Yeah, I. It's unbelievable to me that. Yeah. That is a good thing for anyone involved. Yeah, I mean, I imagine that what the IRS would say here is we're trying to monitor for illicit transactions. We're trying to fight crime and money laundering and tax fraud, especially yeah. tax fraud, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, which is all, you know, great. Uh does that outweigh the risk that's introduced by everybody having to throw their social security number and name right. and address and personally identifiable information around to individuals and businesses all over the place that then somehow have to hold custody of that, which historically is a very, very difficult thing to do well, and then report that to the IR. It just, it's bonkers to me. And what's crazy is the the lawyers that looked at this are saying that rule probably does apply in Claire's case. So like these yeah. individual NFT artists that are selling their art for over 10K probably literally would need to collect your name, social security number, address, et cetera, which is also like this, we haven't even gotten to the, the entire point of crypto and NFT transactions having a layer of privacy and anonymity built into them and how yeah. this is in direct conflict with that, which you could say might be intentional and not just to prevent tax fraud and crime, right? Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe that is a feature of this rule and, and not a bug. Um, no, you know what's interesting about this map is that, okay, so Claire, the NFT artist, if she sells her art for over 10K, the lawyers are saying she would need to report this information to the IRS. However, if you are an NFT collector that is reselling that same NFT for over 10K, say you sell it for 20K, say you sell it for 30K, it probably doesn't apply to you. That's what the lawyers are saying. Uh, so the original it's very artist... reassuring when they say it probably doesn't apply. Like why? <laughs> like, the, yeah. like why does that not apply to you? That's an asset that you. That's like you know. Okay, um, 
if that's the case, right, like using using this like logic, basically only Pablo Picasso can actually be the one that has to collect the social security numbers of people that bought his painting. Anyone that then trades that painting that owned it after that moment in time should never have to do this, which is bizarre, right? Like you're yeah. buying an asset, you're selling. Which by it. the way, like if you... If you use the art world example, I'm pretty sure that it wasn't Pablo Picasso that was engaging in fraud and money laundering. It, right. it was the person that sold the painting after. <laughs> right. Well, I just think about, you know, I just think about this from like the consumer experience, right? Like I am actually very much like pro, you know, um, I know it's probably an unpopular opinion, right? But like also don't live in the U.S., and pro taxation to a certain extent, right? especially living in a country where you have that is largely driven by public services, but and that you know, I, I I think sometimes the crypto community can take it a bit too extreme where they think that when you operate and use crypto, it means you're exempt from taxes. It's like no, this is not the way this works. Like you, you still have to pay taxes. This is just insanity for me. Like if I just take this for like a real world concept, right? Imagine Austin, you went and uh, you were like, I'm going to go buy a Rolex, right? And you you go in, you buy a Rolex for, let's say, like 15K. If when you were at the counter in a legit store, right, the, the, the person that was like serving you and processing your transaction then said, okay, <laughs> Austin, we're just going to ask you for your social security number. Can you just share that with us? Would, how would you feel in that situation? right like oh I, man it would be I mean, weird that right? would be so bizarre yeah it, yeah and it's, that's the I, I know that legit. a lot of our yeah yeah it's like the most it's, legit it's, setup. That, that's exactly like you're dealing with an authorized dealer with a brand that's existed for over a century and all of this stuff uh not just like some sort of pixelated profile picture like the creator of NFT crypto artists. dick butts that now has my uh yeah. social security. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's yeah it's bizarre and i know that as you said matt like a lot of our audience is not uh based in 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 the u.s so it's hard to convey um really how bizarre it is for somebody to ask you for your social security number it's like your digital thumbprint um i get asked for my social security number on a very very rare basis like when i'm you know uh opening a bank account or a credit card or i'm like uh, you know, when I, when I like got the mortgage from my home, <laughs> like exactly. huge financial transactions where the information is only being shared with a very, very secure, uh, financial institution. So mm-hmm. you're not getting asked for your social security number, you know, when you, um, like buy a, a, a TV from Amazon oh. or, or something like that. Like it's in, in these normal sort of day-to-day transactions, Um, so yeah, it would be really bizarre, but here's the thing. It's not just NFT artists that are going to be dealing with this. There there are even broader use cases. What about just trading crypto in general? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's very common for crypto traders to make transactions in excess of of $10,000 on a trade. Turns out legal experts actually aren't sure as to whether or not the rule would apply there. The IRS website defines a trade or business as quote, an activity carried on in good faith to make a profit. Uh, that could be well, sounds like an investment. slipping crypto for a profit. 
Yeah. 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 Um, now the, the, the lawyers are split on this one. Some of them are saying they think it would be surprising if this law applied to your average crypto user. I tend to agree, not not because I I think that the IRS wouldn't want it to apply to the average crypto user, but yeah. just that I, I think that uh, the yeah the enforcement and the friction and the political fallout from something like this, and which the cost like let's be real, to go after the, everyone, right? Like it would be. Oh yeah. Lot. Well, you know, we'll just print enough money to do that, and we'll just hire another six oh, yeah, seven thousand IRS agents. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that like, the the political fallout from from something like that even w- would be huge. I mean, enough people mm. are trading crypto in the U.S. on a daily basis for this to actually uh, matter. Um, so anyway, the, 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 the difficult point here is that we're still not sure whether or not this applies to trading crypto. What about paying for services with crypto? For example, if you pay a developer in ETH to build a website, the oh, yeah. lawyers are saying it likely applies. And what about case. then Stripe, um, right? So, Stripe have built in and mm-hmm. Squ- uh, uh, Square and others like built integrations to as, as a transaction processor right like where you can on your yeah like your shopify store uh except in usdc right like all of these things will now apply to to those uh kind of situations as well here's here's a question for you austin right and maybe maybe i'm getting my tinfoil hat on a little bit do you think that these rules will apply if you use a central bank digital currency instead of the, you know, <laughs> the, the crypto that all the villains and the money launderers use? Mm-hmm. Oh, man, Matt, uh, something tells me it might not apply because that is just so much more secure because the government is overseeing the entire thing. Hmm. <laughs> We're all yeah, safe. I- Maybe... Yeah, maybe that's like the uh, the TSA pre-check or the clear <laughs> of uh, of cryptocurrencies. Hey, just let us scan your freaking face and your retina and monitor all of your activity. Yep. And then, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll keep you safe instead of those bad actors out there on that decentralized Well, this network. was my first thought. This was honestly was like my first thought. Maybe I'm getting a bit conspiracy theory now, but... I- you know, it's it seems like you know that would be a probably the only value proposition that they could really give for um for for using a CBDC in the U.S. was if mm-hmm. you used it and you didn't have to abide by these kind of archaic reporting requirements. I I I know for a fact that people would use them. Uh, if people wanted to use crypto and they had the choice between either like Claire Silver, the NFT artist that you mentioned, right? Is she either trades in USDC or ETH and how the hell is she going to acquire someone's social security number? Or she can do it in, you know, um, the <coughs> Fed coin, if we, if we want to call it that. <laughs> and uh, then she can do it. She's going to be in somewhat of a quandary right like mm-hmm. it's it's either basically i can't or i can with a massive trade off and i, I honestly i just i i am I'm, i think we're both very much cbdc skeptics but this to me feels like another big part of of, of the play here yeah and do 
I also just want to like circle back to, do you all recall what, what I, I mentioned at the very start of this segment, which was that this came from the Biden infrastructure plan? <laughs> what the hell does the Biden infrastructure plan have to do with tax law and IRS reporting requirements for crypto transactions? This is something that bothers the hell out of me about the way that we package legislation and bills in the United States. It's like, oh, it's the Biden infrastructure plan. Everybody can agree that the infrastructure in the U.S. is falling apart. Let's throw tons and tons of money at that. Oh, and by the way, uh, tell us everything about every crypto transaction that you do or face a (laughs) felony charge. (laughs) This is one thing that it just, like Europeans cannot relate to this. And I just can't get my head around a lot of these bills that come out. And it's like, okay, here's this just like sweeping bill. Uh, I can't even remember now. I'm I'm forgetting what the green... um, the green energy the green one. new deal yeah and it's just like you know you just have like all kinds of random shit that's like thrown into this bill and like the one that came off the back mm-hmm. of the no the inflation reduction act is my favorite like you know yeah. like what the fuck is half of the stuff that's thrown into that it has literally nothing to do with like uh the the basis yeah. of what that was designed for it's just like it it, it it's it, it really um creates this cloudiness around what these funds are to be used for, what these initiatives are, are supposed to be used for. I think we could probably talk all day on, on some of this stuff, but it is, yeah, it is, uh, it is kind of crazy. I think just to kind of like round this out, I think you know, the, the, we'll, we'll have to see how this plays out. I think um, we know, <clears throat> I think that there's a, that there's a case going on right now, Austin, right. That's um, that's, uh that's kind of being uh, appealed or or something i think you were going to talk a little bit about that yeah so basically this this could have impact on tons of other areas like people who receive payments from DAOs, crypto stakers crypto exchanges even may need to yeah. start documenting this information it's a huge problem weeks later the irs has now clarified that the rule is actually not currently being enforced and won't be for some time lawyers were expecting this so even though the law is supposed to go into effect beginning this year it will not be enforced until a lengthy period of public comment and review takes place which can sometimes last years um so the rules and who they apply to are still unclear, which makes me feel really uneasy. Uh, at the same time, the Coin Center has sued the Treasury Department and the IRS, uh, arguing that the new statute is unconstitutional, and this case is currently on appeal. So we'll, we'll be keeping an eye on this and seeing what happens with it. Um, I, I, I think that there are parts of this that, that are definitely, they're going to happen, and it's going to create more friction for crypto transactions. No doubt. Yeah. Well, uh it's uh it's going to be interesting to see how it all develops i think uh the <clears throat> i think also kind of circling back as well rounding out some of the etf stuff i think there's a lot to be excited about despite uh some of the short term more immediate term btc price action uh we'll certainly be keeping up to date on on how this all plays out but i think yesterday was a very positive day we'll see how thursday um and uh, the rest of this week rounds out and until then i'll uh i'll see you next week austin talk to you then matt
The contents of the Decrypting Crypto podcast should not be used and are not intended as investment advice. Please do your own due diligence before making any investment, cryptocurrency or otherwise.